was thinking about this, and for those of you who are disappointed that uh, John's not preaching, I, I sympathize. I, sim- I, I love John's preaching, and uh, you know, there's almost nothing worse than having professional work done by a non-professional. And uh, so let's just think about this. You know, John and Angelo and Lance, you know, they're, they're paid to be good. They're paid to be good. But we laymen, we're good for nothing. So, so you, you probably have heard that before. But um, another, another thing that occurred to me as we were driving over here, the, the subject of today's text is about a preacher who got it wrong. And it, it cost him his life. And so I, I just sort of realized that as, as I was pulling into the parking lot. And I thought, well, now this could, this could all end very badly. But life is an adventure, and here we are. We're, we're in it. Now, you've heard that expression, life is an adventure, and it's maybe one of those overused statements. You know, it's so true that we almost don't even hear it anymore when, when people say it, but, and we certainly don't spend time pondering it. After all, what is an adventure anyway? I'm, how is it different from you know an outing or a vacation, a picnic or whatever? When does that sort of thing turn into an adventure. And I'm, I'm someone who has experienced a, a few adventures, big and small, both planned and unplanned. And I can tell you that for me, a vacation or an outing has become an adventure when I realize I wish I had never left home. I, I wish, you know, what was I thinking? And then how did I get into this mess? most important question of all is, what do I do now? How can I be sure that I'm not making another even bigger mistake than the one that got me here? Now, it's times like these that we look for a power greater than ourselves. We look for a sign. And I remember several years ago, I, my story I, I begins, I was having a casual conversation with a Jewish friend of mine at work, and we were talking about the Exodus. And I just, I just Google things all the time. I'm just always Googling things. And so I, I Googled the phrase, into the promised land. And boom, up came this website about a tour called the Promised Land Tour. And it, it started in Cairo, and it goes all the way through the Sinai Peninsula, into Jordan, and then tours Israel. And I thought, wow, this two-week tour, you know, it op- offered... Uh, five-star hotels, breakfast and dinner every day. And I thought, now, this is going to be an adventure. This is not just a trip. This is an adventure. I was really getting excited about this. And just then my phone rang. Just then, just then, my phone rang. And it was Sandy. It didn't even begin with hello. It was, do you know that you have 300,000 frequent flyer miles with Delta Airlines that are about to expire. I said, uh-huh. What do you intend to do about this? So, I, so you might have taken the juxtaposition of looking at this trip. I get this call. And it was, it was just the kind of thing that I always wanted to do with those miles. I didn't want to spend them taking 20 trips to Florida. 
I wanted to do something really different. And I said to her, I'm going to Israel. <laughs> and she says, well, who's going with you? <laughs> Not me. Not me. I said, well, I'll take Natalie and Mia. And they were about 22 and 18 around that time. And so, so I called. I called this tour, American-Israeli tours. And I made a reservation in a couple of days, and I was charging my credit card for the price of a, a pretty nice used car. <laughs> right, right. The travel agent uh, said we needed to fly into Cairo, and we were going to fly out of Ben Gurion Airport in Israel. Okay, so so your your thought occurs, right? You know, you need these people once you land in Cairo. You know, there's no way to you don't have a trip home because you got to get over to Israel. But anyway, so the day arrives, we're at JFK. We're sitting in the waiting area, and I'm looking around. And you know, you know who takes a trip to Cairo? I'll tell you, Egyptians. Egyptians take a trip to Cairo. That's who takes a trip to Cairo. And the whole waiting room was full of Egyptians. And I'm looking around, well, where are these American-Israeli tour people that would probably be on this flight? And I didn't see anybody but me and Natalie and and so I thought, okay, this is starting to feel the, like the real thing. I'm, I'm about to become an infidel. So this is great. This is great. And uh, they didn't even see this together on the plane. I, I shared a row with uh, Muhammad. And uh, we, we made small small talk. And, and he, he asked me, so, you know, what, what, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm touring uh, Egypt. And he they told us, the American-Israeli tours, they said, you're only going to see AIT. We never use the word Israel or Israeli while we're in Egypt. Okay. They, they may be at peace, but that doesn't mean they like it. So you're, you're only going to see ever see AIT, never American-Israeli tours. So... I thought, well, I'm not even going to tell him that I'm with any kind of tour group, so I, I, don't, I don't want to get things started. And, and when he thought that I was not with a tour group, Muhammad became very afraid. He was he seemed to like me at that time, but he was he was really genuinely scared for me. And he he gave me his phone number. He says, you may need to contact someone sometime and here's my phone number and I'm going to be along, I'm going to be in Alexandria but I'll, I'll come running if you need my help and I, I thought huh <laughs> and you know fear is contagious now it, it, it's absolutely contagious and I even though I, I maybe I didn't have a reason to be afraid but I caught fear right and then I started to think about ways that that fear could be realized after all all I knew was this was a website, and there was someone on the end of a phone, and there was a charge on my credit card. How did I know that there was going to be someone there, you know, with the sign? <laughs> <laughs> so when we, when we were checking through customs to go into baggage claim, I was, I was frightened two things. I was frightened that there wouldn't be a sign there, and what is it going to do? But I was also really frightened that the kids would pick up 
just how terrified I actually was. And I was looking for a sign. And we walked through, and the baggage claim went, boom. There it was. Sign, AIT, about that big. And about 60 Americans were gathered around there, and I'm thinking like, I saw a sign. Now, it occurs to me that I'd really already had a sign when, when the exodus into the promised land, what are you going to do about these miles? When all those things happen, I should have taken that as God's hand on this whole thing, and I should never have been told when I was at that moment in customs. But, you know, and you might be thinking, well, okay, thank you very much, this this will all come in very handy the next time I think about doing international travel, particularly to, to Egypt. But uh, that's not the point. We all come to decision points. And um, Sandy and I used to work with youth groups. And, and when you're talking youth group, you're always talking the three big decisions in life, master, mate, mission. And people try to delay these decisions as long as they can. And we just like to float along the river of life waiting for a sign, but we, but what happens is sometimes things come to us and we have to make decisions and they're no longer volunta voluntary or optional. Like for example, you're living in Ukraine. Your decisions are no longer voluntary or optional. It's the decision has come to you. And, and I'm also talking about situations where we realize that we're suddenly in over our heads in over our heads, and even the most independent-minded person will come to a place where they realize they need a power greater than themselves, and some people may think that this power is the government. In fact, a lot of people do. A lot of people do. And sometimes a crisis that arises is so big, even the government knows it's too big for them. I, do you all remember the, the Deepwater Horizon spill? Right um, now, President Barack Obama was a fellow who, you know, whenever he talked about the Declaration of Independence and about our inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he would never say that they were endowed by our Creator. He would always purposely leave that out. But even Barack Obama when it came to Deepwater Horizon, realized that this was a problem bigger than himself, and he asked everyone to join him because even he came to that conclusion. And when we pray, especially when the crisis is personal and acute, we want answers. And in lieu of a miracle, we at least want a sign. And now the sign, the actual sign that came from God was in Jeremiah 27, and I know that we're talking Jeremiah 28 today, but unless you clearly remember Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah 28 is not going to make a whole lot of sense. So uh, we're going to quickly cover the text there. I, I'm going to read it. Uh, the yoke is a sign from the Lord. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send out word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, and through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah, give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. 
tell this to your master. With my great power and my outstretched arm, I have made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All the nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes and then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. Now, this image is pretty straightforward. And as if it needed any explanation, Jeremiah spelled out things pretty clearly. It's actually very hard to see any good news in this. But when you think about it, the Lord, when the Lord told Jeremiah to wear this yoke, it presented an unmistakable sign of subjugation, servitude. It's as a sign that spoke vividly of burden. It spoke of a life that would be subject to the mercy of another. Worse, this prophecy seemed hardly prophetic at all. It's more like the evening news. They knew already that they were subjugated to Nebuchadnezzar. But I think the Lord had at least one other reason for Jeremiah to physically demonstrate this image so drastically. It's because they had been warned several years before. Israel had been warned just as they were entering the land. Now, we're not going to reread all of Jeremiah 27, but Jeremiah did warn them to accept this. This is from the Lord, accept it. And they need to set aside their natural tendency to rebel because it would only get worse for them, much worse. But Israel had been warned that this time was coming. The Lord had warned them of this almost as as soon as they entered the promised land. This can be found in Deuteronomy 28. And just as you know, this chapter is a pretty good read, and it kind of sums up the whole Old Covenant. If we were to boil Deuteronomy 28 into just a few words, it would be, do good, get blessed. Don't do good or do bad, get cursed. And this is... Before we, we're going to cover Deuteronomy 28 a little bit, but let me just say very clearly, this is not our covenant, okay? Jesus took the curse that we could be blessed. It's not based on what we do. Jesus took the curse that we could be blessed, but this was their covenant. This was their contract. So here's the blessings for obedience. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands, I will give you today the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city. You will be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant you that enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction and they will flee from you in seven. The Lord will open the heavens and the storehouse of his bounty to send rain in your land in season and bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations but borrow from none. The Lord will make for you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God, that I give you this day and carefully follow them. 
you will always be at the top and not the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following God or serving God. And this was, this was true. This was oh so true. In the days of Solomon, this was absolutely fulfilled. He was the richest man in the world, perhaps the richest man of all time. His, his country was blessed and benefited through the Lord at that time. It sounds more than pretty good, but just take a minute, a minute to consider that one simple uh, blessing. It says, you will be blessed going out and blessed coming in. Wherever you go, everyone knows your name. Okay? They, just, they just cheer it out when you show up. But this was my, this was my life. Whenever I came home, um, Sandy, my bride, made sure that it was a celebration. I would walk in the door, and she would shout with joy, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! Yay! And then she'd come running at me, and the, and the kids would join in, and they would all run up to me, and they'd grab me and, and hug me, and I'm like, wow, I feel like a hero. I, but that's how it was. I was blessed coming in, and, and she would bless me as I went out. So I was blessed going out and blessed coming in. And my, my mother and father-in-law had a had a, had their own <laughs> had their own ritual. Um, this is great. Uh, they um, every day he'd come home, and she would say to him, "How was work today, dear?" And and he would say, "The hours were long, the work was hard, and the wages." And he answered that question every day the same exact same way. It was it was kind of like their shtick, you know. So he was he was he was blessed. That's how he was he was blessed. Now it was great, but that's the way it was. Um, yeah, I still love it. The hours were long, the work was hard, and the wages were low. It almost seems like he promised the Lord promised supernatural prosperity. The fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your livestock will all be blessed. And I think that the implications are obvious. Big upside, big upside to entering this land. And traveling to the Middle East, you you see this. You see this so clearly. Okay. Egypt, okay, is the most deserted wasteland that you can imagine. Just, just within a couple hundred yards of the Nile River, that place is habitable. Okay, everything else is the most extreme desert that you can imagine. Okay, Jordan, high desert. It's it's like Utah. Okay, how how anyone could live there, I don't know. And then you get to Israel. It's like green, 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 yellow, and you you just know that this is the of the whole region. No wonder everybody loves it. No wonder they can't they can't stand that this is not under their control. But with the promise of blessings for obedience, there were the curses for disobedience. And they're almost the inverse of the blessings. 
You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Almost the exact inverse. And then he finishes up with this. All these curses will come to you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands he gave you. And they will be a sign and wonder to you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies of the Lord against you and he will put an iron yoke on you until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. So this sign from Jeremiah sounded an awful lot like the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. Okay. And specifically a yoke was mentioned uh, but at least in this case Jeremiah's yoke was wood. It wasn't an iron yoke. And also because this was the word from the Lord himself other news implied that so get this the, the Lord tells you that something's going to happen. Why? Because when it does he wants you to know that it was his hand that did it. Okay? And the good news is God is in control. This is all happening. He is sovereign. He is, uh, I'm about to dump this thing again. So uh, uh, you don't need to come to my rescue, Lance. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just keep one hand on this thing and we'll just keep it going. Um, so, but that's the, it's just like Joseph in Egypt, okay? He promised Joseph that he would be over his brothers. And in the midst of slavery and prison, what is it? What happens? Blessing from God, right? The Lord was with Joseph. Even when he was a slave, it says he was a success. When he was in prison, he was a success. <laughs> Things don't seem very good, but he was a success. And so he was a man who could turn evil for good. And this sort of thing goes on today. You might find that your company has been bought out by another company. All of a sudden, there's new management in place. And maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe the company just decides to do a real, and, and you have a new boss. Things change all the time. And, and, and so this is a, in this situation, a person, if they, things get too bad, they, they decide, well, I'll just change jobs. But in the case of these people, right? no change in jobs. They were tied to the land. And you just can't change a country like that. So the question is, how will they be restored? When will they be restored? And it was promised, too, but it was a question of time. How long would this be? Now, we've, we've had a hint, because it said Nebuchadnezzar, his son, his grandson, that this could be a very long time. But it didn't really say. So, enter Hananiah. Hananiah, and the, Hananiah is the uh, would-be prophet. I guess he thought that this prophet's gig looked pretty good, and 
he wanted in on it. So he, he enters and it says, In the fifth month of the same year, the fourth year, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, said to the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all those other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord and said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back. Amen. Now, the first statement in this passage is what I, I like to call a time statement. It tells you who was king, how many years, what month. And this is very important in prophetic literature because you can know when you sync those things up against a historical book when things actually happened. And it's particularly important with Jeremiah, which is not really told in chronological order. So that's a time stamp, tells you when it happened. And then um, it, we will find out that in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that there are consequences for Hananiah's prophecy. So he had pretty good news compared to Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah had this had this yoke, and he had no promise it wouldn't be over. And Hananiah said this was going to end in two years, and it would be returned. In fact, this sounded so good that even Jeremiah said, "Amen," right? And it goes on. It says, "Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the off of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it." And he said to, before all the people, this is what the Lord says, in the same way, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. And at this, Jeremiah went on his way. Jeremiah was actually, like everyone else, pretty happy to hear this. And this, this kind of goes to show, um, Jeremiah was not someone who had knowledge except for what the Lord told him. His knowledge was simply in hearing the words of the Lord. And there's many examples of prophets who are corrected by the Lord. Uh, Nathan, he was uh, David's buddy, and David said, I think I'm going to build a temple. And Nathan says, good idea, you ought to do that. And then Nathan goes home and he says, tell David he's not to build a temple. It'll be his son. David actually was, was happy to hear it because it told him that his kingdom would go on, that his son would reign. So he was, he was you know, he, was, he took the good with the bad. The Lord's still in charge. Um, we know that uh, Elijah, he, he fled Jezebel and he went all the way to Mount Sinai. And when he finally got to where he was going, the Lord, Lord did not impede his journey anyway, but when he finally got to where he was going, the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, 
Elijah. Elijah answered, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, this is not where you're supposed to be. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So the, so in a quiet moment, Jeremiah was alone. The Lord came to him, and he told him that this word from Hananiah was from God. And so, so Jeremiah had to go rebuke Hananiah. And after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah. This is what the Lord says. You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve the Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and they will serve him. Now there it is. There it is. The iron yoke. It was promised in Deuteronomy 28, and now it is fulfilled. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah, Listen to me. The Lord has not sent you. Yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you're going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Now, I have a question. How does this make you feel about the Lord? Okay, it's it it very, and you, you see the love in this. Now, maybe it's hard to see, but you see the love in this. At this moment, when Jeremiah presented them with this yoke, and he said, just accept it, and things will be okay. Things were still pretty good. All of Jerusalem was still standing. All that was missing was the gold and silver from the temple. And the king and some of his nobles had been taken back to Babylon. But it, by and large, Israelis were still in Judah. The wall was there. The temple was there. Everything was still there. They just needed to accept it. But because they had received this preaching from Hananiah, they couldn't get the idea out of their head. This has to end soon. We must get out from under the yoke of this man. We must break it. And so they, they did rebel, and it did get much worse. You can read how this all ends in, uh, in, in 2 Kings and Chronicles. The walls come down. The temple is burned. All of the articles, including the bronze, were all broken up and taken back. And Zedekiah watched as the Babylonians murdered his children. And then they put his body out. So that would be the last thing he would ever know. But it got much worse. The Lord wanted to protect them from all of that. And that's why he had to stop Hananiah. So it's absolutely important for the Lord to say, this man does not speak for me. So why did the Lord have to do any of this in the first place? 
why did he have to remove the articles from the temple? Why did he have to leave his presence? Why did Hananiah have to die? Well, the Lord chose to live among his people. And he says many times, they were like his bride. And when they were living in the desert, living in tents, the Lord lived in a tent. When they moved into the cities and moved into houses, the Lord lived in the house. It was a relationship. It was like wife and husband. And imagine now, it's not just that the wife is taking him for granted. She's bringing in lovers and not, not just sneaking out. No, she was bringing her lovers right in front of him. What, what do you do? Do you send someone to try and talk sense into her? Do you, do you call the police? And if this continues too long with no end in sight, the man just decides to pack up and move out. And he just sends an attorney to deliver a legal separation and terms of reconciliation. He sends a representative. And that's a picture for what's happening here. Things had gotten so bad, the Lord had to pack up and move out. And maybe this would be enough to get his attention, to consider what she's doing. Maybe it's that she could turn his attention away. But just as she does, some other lawyer, an ambulance chaser, comes in and says, I can get you a better deal. I can get you a better deal. Well, that guy needs to be fired. He needs to be stopped because he needs to accept what she wants. So that's the problem with Hananiah and his Mephibosheth. He's the, the dirty ambulance chaser, and he had to be let away. Okay. What else can we take away from this? The Lord is not necessarily who we want him to be. He is who he is. In fact, he Moses said that to Moses. I am who I am. He is a person. And he stated very clearly that he doesn't change. He doesn't change. And so, you know, for some people, they say, well, I wish the, I wish the Lord could change with the times. No. The Lord doesn't change. And that's a very good thing considers Jesus. He has no faults. He has no guile. He is only good. If he was anything other than that, heaven would not be heaven because eternity with an all-powerful, mostly good God would not be heaven for us. Okay. So, I also like to remember my days. I lived in Connecticut for a time, and it was uh, it was funny. I I I got I got to admit, I I heard people say, "Well, the God I believe in is like this." Have you ever heard somebody say that? The God, the God I believe in is like this, and and I would think to myself, "What do you mean? The God you believe in, the God you're talking about now." doesn't exist because the actual God pre-existed time. He, you're making this guy up right now. This is, what this is, this is, you're a pagan is what you are. So, no, really, that, that's right. They're, 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 they're just a pagan. They're, they're someone who's making it up. So, 
but he is the man who revealed himself as the grave I am and who continues to reveal himself through preaching for thousands of years. And I will say this about God. He's better than we can possibly imagine and he's invisible and we can't hear him. And maybe you think, well, he's too God to know. He's too hard to know. But I don't think, I don't think he'll ever speak to me. I'll never be like Jeremiah. And maybe we'll never have an experience where you feel his presence or feel like you directly heard his voice like Jeremiah. But he is there on display in the pages of the Bible. And more so, he is on display as a person who lived and breathed like us, the person of Jesus. Take a look at this man. Consider his kindness, his tireless service, his patience. All he ever asks of anyone is that they come to him as they are. Sometimes people would come to him with a request pretending to be someone they're not. And before he would fulfill that request, he would always get them to admit who they really are. He lo- and why does he do that? Because he wants you to know he loves you. He loves you just as you are. All right. We can take comfort from the fact that the Lord gave us all a sign. We, our sign is not the sign we get. Our sign is something better. Has the Lord given us a sign? Well, you bet he has. He's given us the sign of the cross. And this this sign is not just at the end of the Gospels. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. It's even in the, 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 the book of Numbers as the nations are laid out. It's everywhere. And we know that there are some people who sin where we say, death is too good for them. A simple execution isn't enough. But Jesus died for them too. Jesus died for them too. And and that's probably, in my mind, why the death on the cross was so terrible. But suffice it to say, when Jesus died on the cross, he became the Madden in the middle. He was suspended between heaven and earth. He was on display between the condemned and the saved. He's the crossroads. He's the crossroads of history. He's the crossroads of mankind. He's the crossroads between God and man. Now we must realize also, a little bit like Jeremiah and Hananiah, that Jesus exclusively holds this position. His work was foretold as early as Genesis 3. Images of the cross, his time in the tomb, his resurrection, were left as breadcrumbs throughout the entire Old Testament narrative. People ask me often why I'm so fascinated by the Old Testament. I have to tell them it's because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The patriarchs, the two tablets, the Ark of the Covenant, the list goes on and on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know he said that on the cross. That's also how Psalm 22 begins. And Psalm 22 lays out what it's like to be crucified, except it was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. It is amazing. Well, 
Jesus, this is God in the flesh. He was not just a good man, a healer, or a wise teacher. He was completely and utterly unique. If someone wants to tell you that there's a reasonable alternative to Jesus, that person is twisting my calendar now. And it's leading me astray. So, how else can we better get to know him? Well, as we said before, he's completely good and finds all sin utterly repulsive and nauseating. But he's done the work. He's paid the price and made it possible for all sin, and in particular, all of your sin, past, present, and future, to be forgiven. He says that he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He didn't say that he removed it as far as the north is from the south. There's a definite end to north and south, the North Pole and the South Pole. There is no end to the east and west. It just keeps on going forever and ever. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. And there's, and we believe that we can accept him for who he is and what he has done our body and our person become his temple. He dwells inside of us. John 1, 7 says that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So when we come to Jesus, we step into the light, for all brothers in the Lord's eyes. Let's, let's just take a minute and think about that word purifies. Greek is different than English. Greek has word pictures that we can't imagine. But this word purify is an action that began in the past, continues now in the present, and is going on into the future. It never stops. So when you think, oh, I've done it now, I can't, I can't be clean by myself. It, God's, God's blood doesn't cover me. No, it does. You are constantly always being purified and clean. You always stand before God pure. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And another thing is coming home. Right? Coming home. Not a servant. Not a friend. You can fire servants. You can change friends, but you're stuck with your kids. Okay, you're, they're, they're yours forever. They're yours forever. And a child never stops being a child. He, uh, the Lord had uh, two most famous servants, right? Moses, Elijah. He fired them both. He fired them both. But we are children, and we are never dismissed from his presence. We are that forever. So want to extend this invitation. Come to Jesus. Invite him in. He wants you to spend time with you now so that when you are with him and forever you will know him, each other intimately. Now, let's take a moment. We have a little bit of prayer time. Pastor Gavin will pray. If anyone makes a decision today to invite Christ into their heart, to accept this, uh, this gift, do talk to someone. And, uh,